This is the In Self-Defense Podcast with Don West and Sean Vincent, exploring high-profile self-defense cases and identifying the lessons learned for concealed carriers. Hey everybody, welcome back to the In Self-Defense Podcast. I'm Sean Vincent, thanks for joining us. Uh, Maybe for you it's not welcome back, maybe this is your first time listening, and if that's the case... Let me introduce myself. I am a litigation consultant. I've had the honor to work with a number of lawyers on self-defense cases as a consultant. I help pick juries. I help work theme and theory in these cases. And in the course of that time, I've researched a lot of self-defense cases that have been in the news. And I'm always looking for the lessons learned for concealed carriers on how they can protect themselves, not just from the threats that abound out in the world, but also the legal challenges that they may face should they ever be prosecuted for a use of force event after a self-defense incident. I'm joined on this podcast almost always by my good friend and veteran criminal defense attorney, Don West. Don West is also National Trial Counsel for CCW Safe, and whenever there's an incident in the network, he's closely involved when it comes to uh, looking at the legal ramifications and laying out a path forward for our members. And um, most of the time, our friend Steve Moses joins us. Steve Moses is a CCW Safe contributor. He is a firearms instructor. Uh, he's former law enforcement. He's got extraordinary experience. He's a real humble guy who's super well-informed and uh, well-respected in the industry. We're lucky to have him. We get to take a look at these cases in the headlines, both from a legal perspective with Don West and from a tactical perspective with Steve Moses. And there's always something interesting to be learned for concealed carriers. Uh, We're going to jump right into this new case today. It's interesting. Nobody was shot. Nobody was hurt. And somebody was convicted, but that somebody never touched the gun during the whole incident. Stick around. You'll see how it goes down. This is part one of my conversation with Don West and Steve Moses about the Brenna Kavanaugh case. Gents, we have an interesting case to talk about today. This is the Brenna Kavanaugh case, and what's it's interesting in a number of ways. One is that we've got a shooting where nobody was hurt, nobody was killed, and the shooter himself was acquitted, and the only person that was convicted was the shooter's girlfriend, who allegedly had told the shooter to get the gun and it's disputed by the uh, accomplice here that she said, shoot him, shoot him uh, at the last minute while the perceived intruder was trying to speed away from the alleged home intrusion. Does, does, Does that check out to you guys from what you read? Yeah, that, that's right. And another additional and interesting fact about this is that the person convicted was the former police commissioner 
for the community in which she lived. Right, who was actually uh, pretty well regarded for having cleaned up the the department and uh, gotten rid of some corruption and and got things going. So that that played out a little bit when they looked at sentencing during yeah. the conviction later. She was held in in high regard by the community in general. Yeah, Stephen, when you're reading through here, so I want to I want to go through some details here, and you tell me if uh, this jives with what you read. And I just want to let the listeners know that. This is a case where we don't have a lot of court documents and there wasn't daily reporting from the courtroom. So we've pieced together what we believe the fact pattern is from some sporadic reporting on this case. So we're going to talk about the facts as we understand them and talk about them uh, for lessons learned for our audience from almost a hypothetical with how we understand the facts. But, But you tell me, Steve, if you think I'm on the right track here. You basically have uh, Kavanaugh and her boyfriend, Gray. They're together. They're at home. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. Kavanaugh's daughter, she's divorced, is actually supposed to be at her ex-spouse's house and advertised a party on social media. So one of her friends saw that she was having a party, thought it was at the house that he knew about, Kavanaugh's house, and came at 3 o'clock in the morning there didn't seem to be anything going on. The house is darkened, but he found a door that was unlocked, comes inside, ends up on the third floor of this house near the room where Gray and Kavanaugh are sleeping. They wake up. They think rightly that there's an intruder in the house. She says, get your gun. Gray grabs his gun. They go out. They end up chasing this 16-year-old who's Oscar Lime if that's how you pronounce it, uh, out of the house, this terrified 16-year-old runs across, gets in his pickup truck, in a frantic moment, puts it in the wrong gear probably, thinking he was in drive, but he's in reverse, and backs into this telephone pole. Then he throws it into drive, peels out, moving forward, looks like to get away, to flee, and for a moment at least, both... Uh, Gray and Kavanaugh felt that they were lives were in jeopardy, that this truck was being used as a deadly weapon to run them over. Um, the court, or at least the in the civil lawsuit, they suggest that Kavanaugh told Gray to shoot him or shoot him now. Uh, she uh, denies that, uh, but at any rate, Gray fires a total of six shots. Three of them hit the vehicle. It looks like at least a couple of those shots hit the vehicle while it was speeding away. Uh, and uh, no one was hurt. And then the charges were as we described. Is there anything else detail-wise that you think was relevant that I missed, Steve? No, I believe you covered all of it very well. <laughs> all right. So uh, so here, there's a lot to, uh, to get into here. You know, let, let me mention, mention one thing. Since we're going to talk about lessons... Uh, throughout this conversation today. Let me mention lesson number one. People, people lock your doors at night. If, if, the <laughs> right. door, if the doors had been locked, the 16-year-old kid would have figured out he wasn't at the place where the party was. There's no reason to think he would have broken in Jimmy the door or smashed a window. He would have gotten confused, sent some text messages, and figured out he was in the wrong place. So the whole idea that he was able to gain 
entry to the house is what set the stage for this near tragedy and what turned out to be the criminal conviction of the former police commissioner in the community. It's just crazy, crazy stuff that started with something as simple as an unlocked door at night. Yeah, that's a good point, Don. And the longer that I've been talking to you guys about these types of cases and studying these cases, I really feel that home defense, that obviously your firearm is the last ditch effort after all else has failed but i'm i'm really big not on just locking your doors but i like there's great internet security systems that you can get very inexpensively or reasonably inexpensively that have motion sensors and cameras and lights that are triggered things that you can do to make your property the least (laughs) i like to have my house be the least likely house on the street to be invaded well since we're going down this path yeah, uh, I would like to also insert that maybe it may the intruder may be not someone like this guy who was there by mistake, but that someone also who intends you harm. So if you take these very same actions that you gentlemen are describing, for instance, having security lighting can simply be something as a battery operated um, motion detector that turns a light on, uh, keeping you know some low lighting on in the uh you know the living area locking your doors having an alarm uh ideally if you can't you know add a dog all of this gives you a tremendous advantage in the event that someone targets your house and their intent is you know definitely evil and as you guys said it also handles situations like this well and what you said right there steve i want to peg on too that the intent was evil if someone had to bypass security or actually break in through a door or a window now all of a sudden if you encounter an intruder in your home and they got in that way don even just like legally from a legal standard we're already on much better ground knowing that they're probably there to cause you harm and that would certainly disambiguate any confusion what what if what if this was Kavanaugh's daughter who decided she didn't want to be at her dad's house that night and came home and it could have easily been a mistaken identity uh, that we've seen a lot of tragedies where people have shot their own relatives or children. Yes. And it may, that may have been an explanation for why the door was left unlocked, knowing that she would be coming home at some point or thinking that she might, or who knows, who knows what or why we can't, understand that with the information that we have but a general a general rule that you lock your doors at night and you take some of those steps that you guys have already talked about already puts you in a much better position to not only uh, protect yourself but also to make the legal issues clear as you guys alluded to if somebody breaks and enters your house in every place i know of there is a presumption in favor of that reasonable fear that predicates uh, the right to use deadly force. And I think we'll talk more about that issue as we track through the sequence of events here, especially where the shooting itself took place. But first and foremost, if somebody breaks into your home, there's a presumption that they're there to hurt you and that your fear of that being hurt is 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 right and that creates 
far more latitude, far more opportunity to make decisions that protect you and your family first. Well, and also, if that person indeed is there for a fight, you're also in a better position to, uh, you know, defend yourself effectively because, one, they've had to make uh, a lot of noise and racket, gaining entry. Uh, two, with the uh, low light in there, uh, it gives you the advantage of even if you do not have a flashlight or something, you are in a much better position to identify that person as a don't shoot or shoot uh, contact. And uh, you're in such a better position to defend yourself, kind of going back to that whole thing about, you know, breaking contact or maintaining contact. This gives you so much more advanced notice and allows yourself to position yourself properly. So, so let's talk about breaking contact as the goal of self-defense. We've had a couple podcasts recently where the experts we've interviewed have stressed that point, both Chuck Haggard and the tactical professor, um, <laughs> right, uh, Claude Warner. And, and I think that's so great because that, that's a great way. So many of the shooters that we look at, they get in trouble because they essentially stop the fight and then things keep happening, and this is one of those cases. So I, I think nobody can criticize Gray and Kavanaugh here for chasing an intruder out of their house, right? Um, uh, but, but once he's crossed the threshold and is clearly leaving the property, uh, is it bad judgment to keep following? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in this particular instance, uh, we saw the uh, result of that... Uh, that bad judgment and don the, the legal legally now that they're following a potential threat that digs into any potential self-defense claim that would result from that would you agree yeah i think that the key word there is presumption and the homeowner has the presumption that the person who has broken and entered the home intends harm, that their reasonable, that their fear of being a victim of that harm is reasonable. The further away you get from the house, the more that presumption dissipates until it no longer exists whatsoever. And while there may be circumstances even within your house where the presumption goes away because of the behavior of the person that makes it clear that they are not a threat, that whether they got in by mistake or whether they completely surrendered once they realized that you were there and they're clearly not an actual threat, well then your presumption uh, would would be rebuttable and it would go away at that point and you would not be presumed to use lawful deadly force in response to that intruder. Uh, likewise, as the person leaves the house, is fleeing, uh, it's evident that the person is not a threat to you or not the kind of imminent threat that forms the basis for the use of force in response or deadly force in particular. And as they leave the house, they go on to the front or out the back and then on to what appears in this case, actually having left the property where they had parked somewhere on the street. So the further away from the inside of the house, I think the harder it is to justify the use of 
deadly force in response to that, what the perception was of the intruder breaking and entering the house. You know, so if, I'm just imagining a scenario, if Gray had shot DeLime, imagine if he was running towards the front door and was shot in the back of the, let's say the living room of that house, despite the fact that the intrusion, the uninvited intrusion of DeLime into the house, sort of opening the door to justifiable use of force for the homeowner, if the person's retreating, even inside the home, their house, the immediate ability to do harm or the intent sort of vanishes, and that makes that a much more difficult case, doesn't it? Yeah, it would if the facts were that clear. I think just the idea that someone's running around in the house because they've been discovered doesn't necessarily prove that they are no longer a threat or that they are in fact trying to flee. They could be hoping to gain a better vantage point. There could be, they could be opening the door to let more people in. Who, uh, no one really knows at that point. Obviously, the homeowner, if they have the presence of mind and the ability to assess this as it is happening, should in fact consider that the person is trying to flee that they are no longer an actual threat. And, of course, in that circumstance, if the facts support it, then they would no longer be justified in using deadly force against that intruder. That's an ongoing dynamic scenario. As I had mentioned before, can change pretty dramatically, and legally it can change pretty significantly, as you point out, though, Sean, if in fact that's what happened, that the person had changed their mind or realized they were in the wrong place or thought there was supposed, it was supposed to be empty and yet there were people there and abandoned their criminal act, the burglary, and in fact were fleeing, trying to get out the door, maybe had the door open and were no longer an actual threat. And if the homeowner at that point recognizing that the person isn't a threat, still elects to use deadly force, I, I think they have some legal jeopardy. They certainly have some issues at that point that are going to be a lot harder to explain than if they had used deadly force while the intruder was upstairs walking around their hallway. Hey, Steve. So if you've, if you've basically stopped the fight, right? You've got the intruder, they've, they've run away and then you follow them and re-engage, right? This is what happened here. They they followed him at least to the street where this guy's in the truck. You've you sort of defeated the, the victory you just had with your use of force, and now you're, you're almost starting another circumstance, right? This is another potential use of force instance that you've created now by chasing somebody. Is, do, do I read uh, that I right? I, I believe that to be the case. Uh, I'm fully in support of their following the intruder out of the house. Uh, I believe that occurred at 3 a.m. in the morning. Now, from what I understand, uh, Gray's daughter lived there, and she just was not there that night. Uh, so I think it would be very natural to want to go ahead and make sure that a potential intruder was no longer a threat to anybody, and they, you know, and... 
probably thought at that time, or they may have assumed at that time, or they may have just defaulted to that, oh, by the way, we have another person in this house we're responsible for. I would definitely want to see a person like that completely leave my house. As a matter of fact, I would think it would be prudent to go ahead and follow that person all the way to the door. As a matter of fact, there's no reason to not tell them to get out of here, get out of here, you know, multiple times and encourage them to leave. I think it would be a good idea once they exit that house, if you're at the doorway, if you can kind of see where they're going. You know, if they run down the street, that's one thing. If you see them run around your house, uh, that's another thing. That's just something to take into consideration. Uh, what many people do when they are in the role of the, you know, perceived victim is that even when they are no longer in danger, they want to uh, be able to identify the person that they thought was, uh, you know, a threat to them so that they can be identified and, uh, you know, arrested later. So it's like, I, I want to take that guy off the street. Well, I mean, that's all, you know, sounding good, but the, you know, the awful result of doing that sometimes is instead of doing that, you actually initiate recontact yourself. And once that happens, you've lost control of, uh, of the circumstances to a great deal. What does that mean legally, John? Where if, if, and then the, the perceived intruder was in a wrong at first, but they've disengaged and try to run away, and then the defender chases and reengages, does that sort of reset any of the, the key self defense legal parameters that we look at in these cases? I think that's a good way of putting it, actually, that it resets because you now have, I think legally, you would have a separate standalone second encounter that may actually have different rules depending on where this event actually takes place. Using this uh, Kavanaugh case as the framework for that, once the kid left the house, it appears evident that he ran out the front, ran down the driveway, and ran out to the street where his car was parked. So by the time that Gray and Kavanaugh pursued him, got to where he was, it appears to me that they had already left their property. So not only was DeLima no longer posing an actual threat. He was no longer posing a presumptive threat. He was off their property. And it was, in some regards, I think legally, as if the two of them had encountered each other uh, at a different place and time in a parking lot, for example. That the, the benefits of protecting your home and the presumptions that favor the homeowner, I think, were gone at that point. And yet, obviously, the emotion wasn't and the, the risk wasn't. If anything, uh, the risk was heightened by virtue of the homeowner and her partner's uh, pursuit. So I think from a, in front of a jury, I feel like the fact that this kid had invaded the home, whether on accident or on purpose, I think they, that Gray may have carried a little bit of goodwill out the front door with that, having just been through that experience, but legally 
he left all of his castle doctrine protections at the front door when he took chased them off the property. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I think that's a, a good perspective from which to view this. Steve, so now, arguably, Gray and Kavanaugh put themselves in a position where uh, this young guy in his truck could potentially run them over. We, when we were talking about this a little bit offline, uh, you suggested that they... They, they're the ones that decided to be in front of that pickup truck when, when the kid was trying to flee, right? Did they put themselves yes. in a dangerous position, even beyond uh, just if chasing him out? physically in that position, I'd agree. You know, I'm assuming that uh, they were close enough that they momentarily felt threatened when he uh, put the transmission in drive and attempted to flee the scene. Well, and and have you ever encountered any news stories about things like that? Or, or I, can tend, I can imagine it'd be a tendency if you're trying to, let's say, trap somebody and keep them from getting away to position yourself in a way where it's difficult for them to get away without having to run you over. Um, and, and almost forcing a, a it's you or me kind of situation. I believe that's the case. I believe a lot of people believe that if they physically put themselves in front of a vehicle, they have the the power to cause that person to then go, well, I don't want to run over that person, so I'll just stop here. And I've seen people stop traffic. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of instances in that uh, recently when people just voluntarily stepped out in front of traffic in an attempt to stop, you know, the, the flow of traffic for whatever the purpose was, uh, believing indeed that probably no harm was going to come when actually uh, they, they, they were injured or worse. So I think that is a tendency of people to do on occasion. And it's just one more thing that we need to kind of file away in the back of our mind to think about that situation and make that decision in advance. That is something that we are not going to do. Let me let me uh, jump one in here one second because of something you said earlier, Steve, and and that is uh, that you've known of situations where in something like this, the intruder is fleeing, and there is an attempt by the homeowner uh, to get identifying information to figure out a way that they can report that person later to the police or in some way identify them uh, for for those purposes and, and perhaps others. I read something about this case where at least at the beginning of the process, before the first shots were fired, that Ms. Kavanaugh had positioned herself very close to the front of the vehicle with the purpose of reading and capturing the license plate. So they pursued him out the door and all the way across the street to his car for whatever purpose they had in mind. At least one of those purposes was to try to identify him, and that involved putting themselves close enough at 3 in the morning that they could read the license plate. Whether they had a camera on their phone or how they were going to do it, I don't know. But that put them in the position of being close in the front and uh, 
don't you think, Steve, from a tactical position, maybe the most vulnerable position they could put themselves in if, in fact, this kid decided to run him over? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's real interesting, you know, from a law enforcement perspective to watch a group of armed officers uh, take down a, a vehicle in which it is stopped at the time, but the person inside is considered to be armed and dangerous. And they will come in in such a manner as to not only avoid crossfire, but also to put themselves in a position that if the person suddenly accelerates either forward or reverse, that they're able to move and they're not, you know, in the uh, direct line with that. So this sounds to be, uh, in some at some level, uh, an honest attempt by the homeowners to gather information as part of some future investigation that they could pass on to the police. That would be, obviously, the former police commissioner would know how important it is to try to get identifying information. They, I assume, believed still at that point that he was an actual intruder, that they had just scared off, not knowing he was a 16-year-old kid who knew her daughter. But they didn't do it in a, in, in a way that, uh, that, that didn't not only expose them to the risk of harm, if the guy had in fact intended to run them over, but it sort of set the stage for what then happened, thinking that maybe they were going to get run over shots fired and then the kid obviously panicked he put the car and truck in reverse he backed up and then went forward and by then this kid's frantic he's driving as if he's frantic and they may very well have truly believed by that second sequence out there that he was driving purposefully at them uh, and regardless of whether he actually was doing that, it's their perception of the threat of great bodily harm or death that would warrant the use of deadly force precisely at, at that moment. Well, Don, I've worked on cases where a vehicle has been legally described as a deadly weapon. This is a legal standard there, right? Have you seen that before? Without question, yes, without yeah. question. And so, tactically, Steve, let's forget the fact that maybe they put themselves there and they shouldn't have. But I like your point, Don, that very often in these types of things, once the threat's done, we tell concealed carriers, be a good witness. Um, but maybe the lesson here is be a good witness without putting yourself in, in further danger or, or reopening the immediate threat. But, Steve, I'm curious... Have you? I know you've done a little bit of work with uh, uh, firearms in a vehicle setting. Uh, this is an unusual. Maybe it's not as unusual as we think, but this is not a situation that we've talked a lot about: uh, person versus car, or firearm versus moving vehicle. How do you negotiate something like that tactically? Well, it all depends upon uh, what your 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 objective is. Uh, are you in a situation in which that vehicle is a legitimate threat to your life and uh, ideally through, you know, no, not being a faulty decision that you made that caused that? Uh, if indeed that is the case and it's necessary 
to engage a vehicle that's coming straight at you. And uh, you can assume that that vehicle's been used as a deadly weapon. And if you can't get out of the way, then uh, that handgun may be the only thing that'll save your life. And I know several officers of, and actually I know one personally that has had to use a uh, handgun against a uh, felon in a vehicle attempting to uh, run him down in a parking lot. That is, actually changed directions so that he was coming straight at him. And in that case, it was uh, determined, you know, legally justified. But for the most part, again, it then just kind of becomes is, you know, what is our, what is our, our, is our motive as concealed carriers? Uh, it should not be to affect an arrest or stop another person or detain another person by using force. The only reason that a concealed carrier should use force to detain a person, whether they're in a vehicle or not in a vehicle, is that if that person represents an immediate threat to other people at the time, and really that should be from a perspective, something that really matters to you. I mean, I'm not saying don't be the hero, but by the same token, people that say, well, I'm going to stop this particular person, uh, whether in a vehicle or not, because I thought they were going to endanger these other people. I mean, you're taking on a big risk. Uh, would I do something like that in order to protect my family members? Yeah, the, the answer is absolutely so. But the chances of that actually occurring, Sean, I mean, are just so small that I think it's worth giving kind of, you know, passing thought to and then, you know, going on to other things. Well, I mean, we know that there are police departments that have strict policies on when and when not to actually give pursuit to somebody fleeing in a car. And I've encountered in the criminal defense world police department policies where the actual police department is unless there's absolutely immediate threat of loss of life or injury not to shoot at moving cars. And part of the philosophy there is Let's imagine that a car is coming at you and you're successful at shooting the driver. Well, that doesn't mean that the steering wheel is going to move or that the car is going to slow down in any significant way. And now you've got essentially a, a runaway train or a, a, a loose cannon. Have you, have you encountered that with any law enforcement agencies? Uh, well, I've not encountered that situation uh, personally. Uh, you know, uh, for the most part, you know, the agency that I was associated with, uh, there was, you just basically, you, you could not take a shot at a moving car unless at that particular time it was, you know, basically a direct threat to, you know, your life or, or perhaps that of, you know, other officers. But even if it were, you know, not directed at me, uh, but instead directed in another direction, where there might be people that I was concerned about, uh, I would think that my chances of being able to affect that outcome uh, with a handgun uh, would probably be pretty slim. It would be it, the the risk I'm taking is huge. Yeah, and also too, uh, cars move quickly and they can change directions quickly. And I've come across this in cases as well where uh, maybe the first shot was fired when the car was moving in one direction, but other shots get fired to where it's clear that the shooter's firing at a vehicle that's driving away, Don, and you don't ever want to be in a position where you're firing at someone who's running away from you. It makes it real hard to prove that they're an imminent threat to you. Yeah, let's back this up just a little bit. 
Sure. So when they chase this kid out of the house and he reaches his vehicle there on the street, it's clear legally that Gray can't shoot him because of what just happened in the house. That's over. That's, that's completely over. And he was no longer an intruder. He no longer posed an immediate threat by virtue of being in the house. He had abandoned whatever he had intended, even if he had intended the worst. And we know that wasn't the case because just because of the confusion of the circumstances. But all of that was over. So Gray had no legal right to use deadly force against DeLima based upon what happened in the house. So did he have the right to use deadly force outside based upon events that occurred outside? Well, it seems clear that he did not have the right to use deadly force to keep Lima from leaving the scene. Uh, a layperson doesn't have the right to use deadly force to prevent a felon from fleeing. There can be some force, I suppose, uh, if Gray had stood in front of the car and said, halt, uh, citizen's arrest and the kid tried to drive him over, well, the citizen's arrest thing is done at that point. Now Gray has to protect himself from being run over if that's clear that that's the intention of uh, the kid behind the wheel. But he can't simply draw his gun and shoot at him because of the burglary, and he can't use deadly force against a fleeing uh, burglar unless it's in the context of addressing an immediate threat to his life right then. So when you sort of look at this thing, the the claim was, I guess, what the claim is that DeLima drove in his direction. And that's why the shots were fired because of the fear of being run over. Although the facts were pretty muddy when it comes down to that, I got the impression from at least some of the news reports, that Kavanaugh said shoot or shoot him before there was any attempt of the kid to, to drive away. And in my mind, it was almost as if he was being told to shoot the, the, the kid as the end process of this burglary. But then it gets pretty confusing because once the shot was fired, at least the first shot, the kid panicked, realized he was being shot at, put the car, the truck in reverse, backs into a telephone pole, puts it in forward, pulls away. And at that point, there were a number of other shots fired, ostensibly being justified because at that point he was driving right at them. So I think the facts are a little muddy, but the legal issues aren't very complicated, and that is if people think that because someone has burglarized your house and they have fled to the yard and are trying to get away, that you can shoot them because of the burglary attempt, you would be very, very wrong about that, and you would be prosecuted successfully for your use of deadly force in that scenario. So I'm thinking about the Michael Dunn case, where Michael Dunn shot Jordan Davis at a parking lot after a angry confrontation, right? And now we know that uh, during the first trial for Michael Dunn, 
uh, Michael Dunn. The jury was hung. They couldn't make up their mind on the conviction for the murder charge for him actually shooting Jordan Davis while the car was parked right next to his and it was possible that Davis was getting out of the car. He certainly issued verbal threats and and lots of harsh language and he had that. But that same jury that hung on that murder charge, once they looked at the charges that were associated with Michael Dunn firing shots at the retreating vehicle, shots which hit nobody and hurt nobody, uh, they convicted him on second-degree attempted murder for all three people who were still alive in that that car. And you've got a similar case here where we got a guy who fires rounds at a retreating vehicle, and he's acquitted after a short trial. Michael Dunn was convicted. Um, I'm going to argue that the events leading up to those shots had a big impact on both of those juries on how they saw those shots. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Yes. Cause I was in a way surprised as I've watched this case unfold that gray was acquitted of everything in this case when he fired at a retreating vehicle. What were your thoughts on that? I'm a little confused about that, frankly. I, I suppose in, in some respects, because it was clear that this thing started by DeLima becoming the intruder, and this was the aftermath, and it was clear from the perception of Gray and Kavanaugh that they were pursuing an intruder, someone that they literally discovered near their bedroom in the middle of the night, that that gave some persuasion to the jury that maybe this didn't warrant a criminal conviction. And I have to feel that underlying that was because DeLima wasn't killed or seriously injured, that all of the shots missed. So there was perhaps less at stake, and the jury may have been more willing under these circumstances to find almost... And, and this sounds almost too flip, but it was almost no harm, no foul, where I, I do think that would be a completely different assessment if one or more of Gray's shots had actually injured or, or God forbid, have, have killed DeLima. I think they would have looked at it completely differently. The difference between Gray being acquitted and Kavanaugh being convicted may have been just the luck of the draw. It may have been better lawyering. It may have been a better jury, one that was more inclined to favor the accused. It could be any of those subjective things that come into play when you're picking six or 12 citizens to determine your fate in a criminal case that isn't directly assignable to the facts of the case uh, but more so just the, the way the jury is responding to, to the evidence and to the people. And um, in some ways, they may have felt that Gray was kind of a victim of those circumstances and that he was simply doing what he was told to do and that because nobody was seriously injured, they just didn't want to hold him legally accountable.
All right, that's a good place to pause the conversation. Next week in part two of the Brennan Kavanaugh case, we're going to look at the uh, ongoing and crazy legal consequences and fallout from the shooting. Until then, thanks for listening. Be smart. Stay safe. Take care.